0: Trademarks owned by Beckley, SAB the C V. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey, please drink responsibly.
1: Van, it's nice to see you. I've been following your work on The Ringer, and I remember you from TMZ, although I don't know that I can cite much of your work from TMZ. I also don't know I've I've heard you quoted talking about some of the shames involved with whatever it is that must be done. At TMZ to uh, get ahead. But I didn't want to talk to you about that. Now, I wanted to talk to you about Fat, Crazy, and Tired, Tales from the Trenches of Transformation. It's a book you've written. I don't know why you've written it, and I don't know uh, what was the transformation you were looking for.
2: So I, at one point, like I've gained some weight now since the pandemic. I think we all went through, you know, forgiving ourselves for not being able to stay committed to a gym routine when there are no gyms and there's no society. Uh, but before I was about 370 pounds and I got down to and the whole time I was at TMZ around 225 pounds, right? So it was a lost a lot of weight. And the book is really about sort of an indictment of a lot of the different things that got me up to that size and how culture played a part of it, a part in it. And, how when I sat back and looked at it, there was a predisposition for me to have, live an unhealthy lifestyle, dealing with some of the mental trauma that I had growing up. Like I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, so that, that's a part of it. And just everything that I learned about it, it was almost like one of those weird, sappy, self-help books at first, but so much life changed during writing it. I lost my father, you know what I mean? I, I lost, I moved away from TMZ or, my movie we did running an Academy Award. So much stuff happened that the book actually be, be, became about, like, that transformation. Like, me having lost my dad, me getting away from that workplace, and just how I'm coping and how other people that might be have similar feelings, how they can cope, too. So
1: you started just, I'm going to write a self-help book about my journey superficially, and yeah. I'm going to tackle some stuff, but I'm not prepared for life dealing me some changes here that are also transformational that can be scary but most growth is
2: yeah yeah and then as things would come in the book just changed and it ended up becoming sort of a a a blueprint of how to deal with the curveballs that life throws at you you know
1: you mentioned baton rouge though are you talking about the what what are you talking about there specifically when you just throw the blanket of growing up in baton rouge
2: right so i'm from south baton rouge uh, two places in South Baton Rouge, one called Gardere, the other called The Bottom. So this is like, obviously a place called The Bottom, it's the Buttermilk Bottom, it's the, it's a part of Baton Rouge, it's a, you know, it's not, it's a, it's a tough part to grow up in, you know what I mean? Like, um, and when you grow up there, there are certain things that you accept as normal that play a part in how you view your own health, right? People die, people go to jail. They, they, it, people die, people go to jail. You, get used to a little bit of death. You get a, lose, used to a little bit of mass incarceration. You get used to a little bit of, uh, of coping with these things that really are, are dysfunctional, but they seem like everyday life.
1: Well, the, you're, they're your normal. You don't know any different. You no, don't know, right. I didn't know that my family didn't have money.
2: Right, yeah. Like when I was at TMZ, like I, we, I would be talking to people and they'd be like, uh, yeah, like the one convict we have in the family, it's People I'd be like, the one. Like you mean to tell me, y'all only got in your whole family is only one person that been to jail. Like we're we're batting a thousand with all the uncles. Well,
1: I don't me. I don't think diverse is what I think of when I think of TMZ. I don't know what your coming up in TMZ was exactly. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll talk about that. I'd rather talk yeah. about uh, your Academy Award and how it is that all of that happened because mm-hmm. you uh, it you had a unique perspective, right, and just not the opportunity. Uh, the opportunity hadn't presented itself to put it in front of people, correct? In terms of what? Just the story that you were telling, all of it, what it is that you were trying to accomplish with what it is you were making.
2: Yeah, I mean, for us, like the, what we were talking about with that, we're in a position, the pandemic had come, it's me, Nick May, Trayvon Free, we're right on the backside of the George Floyd protest, Is actually we're in the middle of it, and we're like, how can we define how we're feeling through art? You know what I mean? Like, how can we define that? How can we uh, basically put a piece of art out there that displays to America how it feels to look at this stuff every single day? It's like Groundhog's Day. So we come together, we do it, and, and Trayvon goes, okay, so after the pandemic is over, this will be the first project that we do in our new company. I was like, now nah, we gotta do it now. And it was, it seemed like something now that was impossible, but we just, we had nothing else to do, and we had Lawrence Bender, We had Sean Puffy Combs. We had all of these people who believed in us. We put it together, used our own money, made the movie. Movie wins the Academy Award. Well,
1: what is the story, though? Take me through Two Distant Strangers, for the people who do not know. Take me through how all of that happened, because self-financing a movie that wins an Academy, you know, that's not a normal thing.
2: Yeah, so what happened was we decided we were going to do the movie, and then Trayvon Free, amazing writer, writes this great script. And then we, we take the script around to people. We go, hey, you want to read this? Like, boom, everybody goes, it's amazing. Okay, cool. It's amazing. Great. Give me $200,000. And then they're like, hey, 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 we don't know how the economy is going to be. You know what I mean? Like, we don't know how the economy is oh, going to be. Oh, I've learned starting a business during a pandemic is hard. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's nuts. Yes. Right. I had underestimated
1: uh, the, the, what pandemic does to business. Yes. Right.
2: And these were people that were like, were there even some people that when I left, TMZ were like, oh, come on, we'll let you do whatever you want. I'm like, okay, this is what I want to do. Fund it. And like, now nah, I can't really do it. Um, you're not really asking for that much, though. By Hollywood standards, that's not
1: a giant ass for a project someone believes but in. But
2: see, the thing is, the reality of the situation is that you ask for that much money, but it's a short film, so they're not going to get the money back. Like, you're asking for money for a pure piece of art. You know what I mean? There's almost no commerce in it for them. So you, they, don't, they don't think they're going to get the money back. So at a certain point, me and Trayvon look at each other, and I, got, and I go, well, I mean, I got 100000 can, And he goes, all right, let's do it. So we put the first money in, and then, everybody, then other money starts coming in. It didn't end up costing $200,000. It ended up costing way more than that. But to get us going, we had to go ahead and do that. And then we did legwork. I had a great relationship with Puff, went out to Puff. Um, Lawrence Bender is a great friend of ours he helped us with the creative and the production and then Trayvon started going around to people, Kevin Durant got involved Mike Conley got involved, all of these guys were involved and gave us money to help us finish and then by the time you know, we screened, we actually didn't get into Sundance and we were like alright, there's no way we're, the Academy is going to look at us if Sundance won't take us we got shortlisted, we got nominated and then Netflix came and bought it for literally 10 times the price that we were trying to get when we were first uh, uh, making them. Has it changed your life? Sure. I mean, you never want art to be defined by who validates you. But if you're going to be validated, it's not bad to be validated by the Academy. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, you, if you're if you're going to play the validating game, then that's not bad. But uh, nah, it's, it's been something that obviously has opened doors, and it lets people know. Because more than anything is this. It's like, uh, it's obviously... You guys know this, you guys create every single day. You can tell people what you want to do and have it perfectly like, mapped out in your head, but if you actually just go do it and show people that you can deliver, it's just a much better resume builder than anything else
1: and you have taken that into what kind of opportunities like does the world open up for you because you have to fight like that at the beginning but once you get that one validation people are gonna extend to you a little bit of a little well, more trust I sure, would assume, yeah on whatever's next
2: yeah I mean what what we do now is just line up projects and try to get things done obviously it's been a you know Trayvon our partner six feet over productions is the name of the production company Um, Trayvon, our partner, is one of the hottest ride directors in the city right now, Uh, so we're with him on everything that he's doing, but we also have projects and things that we're doing with various companies that will be coming later on this year, next year. Um, I took a little pause from the production side because I'm hosting a television show right now, which is why I'm in Miami, so career-wise thing. a sad be- television show a good television show but a sad television show a good television show and a sad television show but a necessary television show. It's called hip-hop homicides is about some of the murders that that take place in hip-hop there's a phenomenon there that needs to be um explored not just from the standpoint of rest in peace to this guy rest in peace to this lady rest in peace to this person what happens to these rappers what happens to these guys in, in hip-hop is just sort of like it's the common story of sometimes people whose proximity to certain violence, or their proximity to certain morals and values ends up coming back to get them. You know what I mean? And it happens all the time. It's just a lot of the times when it happens in these other cases, nobody It's like a tree falling in the woods when nobody's around. Nobody cares. But you care when it's your favorite rapper and he's in a situation where he's shot or when it's your favorite rapper and he's mixed up in some gang violence and ends up taking his life. Or when it's your favorite rapper with there with the wrong person at the wrong time and they get killed. Is that
1: a 50 Cent production?
2: Yeah, that's G Unit Films and Mona Me. So that's 50 Cent and Mona Scott Young. Why is why are they doing it? 50 Cent is doing it because for 50, he I think he had a very close relationship to a couple of rappers that this has happened to. And could have
1: happened to him any number of
2: times. Almost did, right? He really would have been one of these guys, shot nine times. And I think that being a being a dude who, and I've, me and 50 have talked about this a lot, being a guy whose goal it was to get money and then get out of the street, he's like, the, the money. the goal is to get the money and move out of the block. He is a stone-cold businessman. He really doesn't understand some of the guys that come up still want to be in the middle of it like he's trying to understand what's going on too
1: he doesn't understand the idea of a guy wanting whatever street credibility buys you in in the currency of this climate
2: he doesn't understand i mean he understands obviously how much money and adulation can be attached to street credibility he doesn't understanding he doesn't understand. Wants you to still be in the street. Why would you want to be shot at nine
1: times again? Like, why would you want? Why it's so much better to just uh, partner with Vitamin Water. I
2: heard you guys talking about yachts. I look out in Miami, beautiful place. Yachts everywhere. If you could be on a yacht, why would you want to be anywhere else? You know what I mean? And I think he really wants to But are you, are
1: you exploring that? Because the, the, that's a fascinating undercurrent throughout all of hip-hop, right? Mm-hmm. That Rick Ross is a former correctional officer. That you have to be, you know, that shot nine times ain't
2: bad for business if you survive it. So this is my goal in my post-TMZ career. My goal is to always, we're obsessed with the headline. We're a headline culture now. And the place that I worked helped to define that. We're a headline culture. Nobody cares about the body of anything. What you want to do is you want to inject conflict and you want to inject sensationalism into the headline and then get the click. And once the click happens, you don't care anymore. My goal now is to move past the click and to be a little bit more nutritious. And with this show, you start off with a premise that is very sensational, something that everybody cares about. Celebrities that have passed away before their time. But there are common threads in all of these things that need to be discussed on a societal level. There are reasons why King Von and FBG Duck passed away. There's a gang war going on in Chicago. I'm not making the Chicago the mascot for it because what we also talk to, we also talked to people like Chicago King David, it Barbie, Pastor Cory Brooks that are working on this problem. But there's a gang war going on in Chicago that is generations old, right? And that is akin to something that you would see in Iraq or something like that. It's like they are tooling up on each side, armed, walking around, looking for each other at all times. And it happens to your favorite rapper, FBG Duck, shot 24 times on the Gold Coast of Chicago. Guys left their place, knew where he was, spent the block. Two, I'm not talking about like, I'm talking about a coordinated hit jump out, shoot him up, get back in their cars. And the hip hop is a part of it, the neighborhood is a part of it, everything is creating this like gumbo of death. And you see this going on everywhere. And it's something that we should be discussing.
1: How did you get to TMZ? What is the story behind the, the path, your journey, and where it is that you've arrived and what you wanted when it started?
2: So I was uh, living my best life, I'd say in about, from about 28, 20, about 2008 to 2010 was like my best life then. Um, I've been working at this company called Capricorn Programs and the job ended. Um, the company sort of dissolved in a weird way. The financial crisis took a toll on it. And I was on unemployment. So every day I'm hooping. Boom. I'm getting my game up. You know what I mean? I'm out here giving people buckets all over the city, left and right. All right? And long story short, because it's a long, drawn-out story in how this ended up happening. I'm going into the gym one day, and the lady has a camera. She asks me, she goes, uh... Look, we're doing a survey out here on Hollywood Boulevard. The, the, the LA Fitness on um, Hollywood Boulevard. We're doing a survey out here. If, you, if we like your answers to these questions, um, we'll let you go to this other place and answer some more questions. And, you know, it's
1: $500. But why were you out there? Why? why I was you?
2: walking into the gym.
1: Okay, and but why were you in Los Angeles? or Why were you in Hollywood? Oh,
2: I, left Baton Rouge, I left Baton Rouge after the hurricane. So after the hurricane, I'm like, okay, If I'm going to go, I had worked shows in Baton Rouge. I had worked a show called College Hill. I'd worked a movie called The Reaping, which is coincidentally where I first met uh, Idris Elba. He was in that movie, and now, you know, him and I have the same manager. Like, it's funny to talk about that. But, um, and then I came out here, and my friend Tommy, Tommy Talley, a guy from Baton Rouge, was working for this company, Capricorn Programs. And I took a job there as a game taper. I would tape video games for this video game show that we have. So all day long, I would play video games. And then I would tape them. Fantastic job for a 25-year-old. Were you
1: leaving Baton Rouge, at least in part, because of the damage done by the hurricane? Because you saw a, a place in disrepair that was not cared for? Or was not being cared for by... I mean, Baton Rouge foretold a whole lot of things that have become exposed since then.
2: Yeah. So what I realized was that... So living in Baton Rouge during the hurricane, what I realized was just how quickly everything could go. Like, literally how quickly society, we don't think about it. Every single day you use the internet and watch your television and listen to radio, you should be thanking God for that. Cause literally an event happens and it's, I mean obviously everybody knows now, literally an event happens and it's all gone. The hurricane comes through and society, obviously New Orleans was destroyed, but reverberations all throughout South Louisiana, we didn't have anything. like. There was a curfew at five thirty. Like people were jacking you for your gas. You didn't have freedom of movement. I remember I came through to the set one time, and there were all of these military guys in like the parking lot planning jump-off points to get to New Orleans. I'm like, wow, it's like it. Everything changed. Apocalyptic, and a bit right? Absolutely. Like Zombie, zombie
1: apocalypse.
2: Zombie apocalypse weirdness. Like weirdness is like I'm leaving the house one day, and my dad goes, "Take this with you." I'm like dad, he, I, he handed you a gun A gun he him, He's like take this with you and I'm like, With
1: no life of like This was not a normal thing For your dad I, to, At any point To just hand you no, a gun My dad say-
2: kept a gun on him At all times But And he knew That just wasn't my, my Wasn't my vibe But he was like I Just want you to know you're Driving around A lot of people out here Desperate A lot of people Didn't came up here He's like take this with you And I took it with me And so when, After everything After the movie was over I go, all right, look, I got to get to Los Angeles. Forget about the plan. Forget about going out there under the complete right circumstances. All I want to do, I'm like, no, whatever. I told my parents on Monday, I'm like, I'm I'm leaving.
1: Any money with you? Like, what are you dreaming of here at this point as you go out to Los Angeles before you
2: get to this basketball game? So what I had with me was, I'd say I had had about $4,000, so not bad. You know what I mean? I had worked on the show the whole time. I had about four or $5,000. Um, but more than anything, I felt like I had met a couple people on the show. There was a producer on there that had seen some stuff that I had wrote. And he was like, come out there. Talk to me when you got there. We'll see what he can do. That ended up not really becoming anything. But at least I knew someone there. And I had my friend Tommy. So I was able to sleep on his couch. I go into his job with him. He worked at Capricorn Programs. I go into his job with him. And a producer there, Dave, goes, Hey, does your buddy need a job? That's literally the second day I'm in Los Angeles. He goes, Hey, does your buddy need a job? And I'm like, Yeah. And game taper, $500 a week. I'm like, All right, it's meant to be. I get like a I sublet in an apartment out in Van Nuys, no air conditioner, me and a friend named Dan. Um, and I, actually, he wasn't a friend, he was just the guy that was living there. And then I'm out there doing the same thing, just a roommate, random roommate. I mean, him and I ended up becoming friends, then him and I ended up moving out and getting our own apartment. Um, I, I just continued to make connections and get with people and understand the city a little bit more to the point to where Capricorn ended. I had nothing else, I had lost the weight by this point. I was playing basketball every day and that's how I get to the point to where I unwittingly participate in a commercial. So I'm going into the thing. The lady tells me, hey, come do the survey, 500 bucks, all the money in the are world. Are you the
1: popular heavy baller at this point? Are you, guys, are you going out there and dominating people at 300 pounds where you're like, uh, you're one of the big guys who's, who's running the court and surprising people with big man game?
2: That was the old yeah, Man, at this point, I'm about 225 and I can score for me. All years. right, now you're wrecking people. I can do my thing. All right. You know what I mean? I'm I'm, I'm in, I'm in my prime.
1: And you're confident when they put you in front of the camera now, whatever it is that you're doing in front of the camera.
2: Whatever, I, whatever it is. That,
1: that's got to be your most, most confident place at this point in your life is leaving a basketball court. Sure, yes?
2: sure, sure. And I like, to, I like to mess around and have a good time. So I'm in there, whatever. I end up going there and doing this survey. They're like, hey, use this deodorant. You brush your teeth with this. Do all of this. Blah, 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 blah. And then afterwards, we'll get your opinions on all of these things. <clears throat> and they're like, use this razor at the end. So while I'm using the razor, Somebody jumps out and they go, hey, are you ready for the Gillette Fusion Pro Glide Challenge? And I'm like, what? The whole time it's a commercial. All of it was to butter me up to get me to drop my guard. And then they're doing one of those razor commercials. Like, hey, how do you like your razor? Ha, whatever. And I'm going back and forth with the guy, having a good time, whatever. I leave. And when I get backstage, everybody's like, oh, man, like you did so well, blah, blah, blah. I signed this paper. It's actually not 500 bucks. It's uh, on a Saturday. It's $2,000 I make for the commercial. Then I get a holding fee and all of that. I'm a nice, honest Southern boy. So when I get back to my unemployment, it says, did you make any money this week? And I say, yes. This is what I made. And the unemployment people were like, cool. We're going to readjust your
1: You, you decided it. to be honest about this. What an idiot. You've got to pay taxes on it and everything else. And right. you've decided to not to play, by the, to play by the system. And you've declared to unemployment that you weren't this day technically unemployed.
2: Right. And so they go, cool. So you worked a job. So what we do now is we readjust the amount of money that you've made from the old salary that you had at Capricorn to this new salary of $2,000. That's what you made for this entire quarter. So now your unemployment goes from around $500 a week to $75 a week. I go up to Pasadena to the unemployment lady, and I'm like, hey, I just want to let you know this is a mistake. Like, I don't have a job. I worked one commercial on accident. I'm not in the union. I'm not a commercial actor in the union and stuff like that. And I remember, she says, it literally goes into the computer. And she said, the computer has no emotions. She's like, there's nothing we can do. And I'm like, damn, right away, I have to find a job.
1: So this was supposed to be a break. Being in a commercial was supposed to be a good thing. This is not a good thing. It's costing you money.
2: Bad. I was like, I wish I had never met these people. Shout out to Gillette. I work with you now. But uh, I go, and when I go to this place called entertainmentcareers.net, the first job is TMZ tour guide. I'm thinking to myself, can I really be like a tour guide at this point? 30 years old I was taking people around the city, blah, 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 blah. And I, I talked to my girl about it, and she goes, yeah, just think about the grand scheme of it. Think about being with a media organization. I wasn't really familiar with them. Like I'd known that they, I thought it was like extra. What year was this? This is like 2010. So they're established. Oh, absolutely. They're,
1: they're, they're a big deal now, and they're an industry changer, and you are arriving with not a lot of news judgment or thoughts of, Any of this stuff, you're just looking for a job and tour guide will start.
2: Yeah, like I knew that they were like the uh, the bad boys of it, but I would come home, you know, she would watch that show, she would watch Extra, she would watch E! News, and the thing that I would remark uh, or just marvel at is like, yo, these are all of these different shows, and they just covered all the same stuff. It's legitimately all the same stories. And she would be like, you watch the same sports center over and over and over again. She goes, it's exactly the same thing. And mm-hmm. I go, oh, what? You're right. You're smart. you loyal. And so I get there and I get to the tour. And the tour, the way they did the TMZ tour then was like it was American Idol style. So I wrote a funny cover letter. They accepted me. They was like, okay, cool. And they had these tour guys. They were launching the tour. This was the first tour class. And there was six people. And every week they would cut it down. Every week they'd like call people. I'd be like, hey, can I talk to you real quick? And then somebody would be gone. And it ended up being three guys at the end of it, It me, Keith, and Alex. And we started the TMZ tour. That was in April, or that was probably, that was, I'd say, like April, May of 2011 that I started there. Like, started with the tour. By June, July of 2011, I was on TV every day. A couple of months later.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because you were a big personality as a tour guide, because you did good television, you were confident, and your girl's advice is good advice, just get near the media Mm -hmm. thing, and and maybe you'll get caught up in the current of it. He
2: came to take my tour. Harvey Levin did. And when he came to take my tour, he saw one specific joke that I did, that I wrote specifically for the tour, and he was like, I want to have you on the show. So I woke up 6 o'clock in the morning, went down there, and it took me about, I'd say, three months to understand that there was a culture problem there. Why did it take that long? Because at first I wasn't there very much. Like I was on the tour. So I was on the, I was on the tour and I, was, I wasn't in the office. So like getting in the, getting in the office, it, being around everything, I was like, oh, huh. And then I talked to people. Culture problem how? Um, this is the way I understood that there was a culture problem, just from one aspect, and I'll be selfish. There was a, a, a video, and they were showing different rap stars on the video, and there was like a, um, they were showing, Wiz Khalifa was on the screen, and Wiz Khalifa was on the screen, and somebody had Chiron did Little Bow Wow. And I'm like, Hmm. This is about the. This is feeding. This is about to go on television. I'm like, Ugh. how does that get through? Like, at the at the place where there there's are this, two
1: very different people.
2: One guy is six foot five, notoriously tall. They look nothing alike, and I'm like, how does that get through? Like, how does that happen? And I'm actually curious about it. I'm not mad. Like, I'm curious. I'm like, well, how does it end up that?
3: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: But when you mean culture problem, you mean literally a culture problem. You're not talking about necessarily a toxic environment. You're talking about a culture that doesn't account very much for your culture.
2: Well, as far as any of that stuff, it took a lot longer to understand that because I had to be in in the newsroom to understand that. Um, but, like, toxicity doesn't really affect me in the same way it fa- affects other people because my personality is very strong. So, you can't bully me. So, because you can't bully me, like, when I say enough, it's enough. But I wasn't, I wasn't, like, really cognizant of how the workplace was affecting other people until I had two, three, four. Um, and these aren't any. These aren't any groundbreaking assertions that I make. I had two, three, four, of like, coworkers come to me, like, crying. Like, I can't handle this anymore.
1: Which parts of it were not handleable?
2: You'd have to ask them, but, like, what they would some, – sometimes you'd have to ask them for an in-depth answer, but what, in-depth answer, but what they would say is, like, uh, I can't move up. People talk to me in certain ways. Uh, like, I'd get yelled at. I'd get disrespected, all of those things. Um, and those are things that like, and I, you know, the way I would look at people, I never forget, and I won't name names, but we're, we're all in the, um, this is a Lamar Odom story that's happening. <laughs> and I knew Lamar Odom. I knew people who knew him. So I wasn't convinced at first that Lamar Odom like, had a drug problem. They were actually right about this. I, I was, I wasn't convinced at first that Lamar Odom had a drug problem. Like, his best friends were giving him the information, unfortunately, and that's the way it works. And that's how dirty the game is. But I was like, yo, the Kardashians are making all of this up about him and they're putting out all of this stuff because he's breaking up with her. And I would say this on the television show, and some of the people who were on the news desk would get, uh, they would get upset with it. It would annoy them. And it wasn't Harvey, but another top voice at TMZ sitting around, and I'm like, telling you, all of this is BS, blah, 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 blah. I don't trust the Kardashians. I don't trust this. And somebody says in front of a room full of people, they go, Wh- whatever, whatever. Shut the fuck up. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Oh, I can't curse. It's like, um, whatever, whatever. Shut the fuck up, man. And right away, it doesn't matter who, where that's coming from for me. Right away, I'm like, w-. I said, I'm like, what? And he's like, he doubled down. He said, shut the fuck up. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I don't know who you think you're talking to in this room full of people but i'm going to stand here and say whatever the fuck i want to say and if you don't like it you can get me out of your place but there's no fucking way that you're going to talk to me like that in front of all of these people are you out of your motherfucker are you nuts like who are you talking to and and there's a hush that falls over the room and i'm turned up i'm mad so i don't now i don't care what is happening and it ended up being a situation where they I was taken into an office and apologized to by executive producers of the show. But there were limits. And they were always with me, there will always be limits. But I don't think other people, number one, I was kind of a, a fixture on the show by that point. I'm a big guy. I don't I don't think other people felt as comfortable setting limits there and I think it was a hard place to work for. I don't think I know it was a hard place to work for a lot of people, and it was a it was a place where a lot of people, incredibly talented and bright people, were kind of chewed up and spit out.
1: Was the breaking point for you there the argument about the Ellen DeGeneres uh, George Bush thing? Or? It,
2: it wasn't so much a breaking point that that actually of everything that happened was the thing that was probably the most overblown, right? Because so the way that this the way that this went was like, you know, I am. I don't want to talk about Hurricane Katrina. I don't want to discuss it that much. It's... There was something... There was a phenomenon that happened in Hurricane Katrina where completely healthy people just died. They just got stressed out and died. It was, I don't know how else to explain it to people. It's like there were people... Some of them would be a little bit older, but... Or, like, even if they had heart attacks or whatever and they just died and, like, and you... They didn't even die in a hurricane. Like, the hurricane killed people, it's true. But I had aunts and uncles and cousins, beloved people, who one day is like, we come to the house and they're not breathing no more. I'm like, and this is just a nuts thing in my life, like watching people drown and their houses get destroyed. I don't really want to discuss that much. And I had talked about that before. And so you're talking about George W. Bush and Ellen DeGeneres, and they're like, always want to go to me on George Bush. Hey, Van, tell us how you feel about President Bush. It's not my man. Like, I don't mean, I don't care what anybody feels and how anybody feels about whatever, that's on you. I don't want to get into political arguments with everybody. That's not my guy, that's not my man. I don't fuck with him. Like, we needed help and we needed people to be serious. And maybe people didn't take it seriously. Maybe people didn't know how bad things were down there. We needed help. And we needed somebody to be serious about helping us and that's not my guy. Like, he can be cool with Michelle Obama, I'm not gonna be mad at Michelle about it. He can be cool with Ellen DeGeneres. I'm not gonna be mad. You were at Ellen desperate DeGeneres.
1: for help and leadership, and, and Kanye West is screaming on television during a telethon. That's George that's, Bush yeah. doesn't care about black people, and that's what you're feeling in the middle of. That's it.
2: not my man, right? And so we talk about it. I get all emotional at the beginning, at the, at the top of the day on the the big show. I get all emotional about it, and I say, "Hey, when this comes up on TMZ Life, I don't want to discuss it. All right? Like, I don't do good at you know, I don't want to talk about it. They come back, the show is coming." Van, we need you, 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 Van, you. you, Please, 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 please. I'm like, no. And they're like, Van, like, Harvey isn't here. Harvey wasn't there that day. Like, we need you to talk about this. Like, you're going to give us all of that. We need. I'm like, all right, whatever. So I do it. Mike Babcock, who is a friend and remains a friend, and me and Mike have never agreed on politics, but that was still my man. We were like the Riggs and Myrtle of TMZ Sports. Like, that was my guy and still is my guy, like, right now. Um... Uh, he's hosting the show with Charles and um, we get into the whole situation and the back and forth on the show, I, number one, I, my emotions are already high and I also felt like he was trying to, I don't know, play me or something like that. I was felt a little belittled, okay? So what I did was I waited, I didn't even get into it on the show. I thought the better way to do this is to address it with Mike after, between the segments. So I walked over to him, and I. the reason why my hands were on the shoulder is because I was whispering in his ear. I was like, hey, bro, I didn't really appreciate that. Blah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. And then um, I turn around to leave, and he stands up. When he stands up, I go back and forth. I'm like, yo, I said what I said, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, Charles goes, okay, man, this is too much. Go home. All right? So I left. I get a call later on that night, and it's like, hey, what happened? I'm like, I oh, and Mike just had an argument. No big deal. And they go, well, did you put your hands on him? And I'm like, yeah, it's Mike. It's my man. I just put my hands on his shoulders. They're like, wow, we got to talk about this. And I'm like, oh, yeah. so I'm like, <laughs> Oh, this is
1: escalated! I'm like, is, like oh I was, fuck! And i, I was like, just talking to my friend about something. Yeah. We were just talking
2: directly. And the way that this goes for me is, I think this is this, this, the, the mistake that I made. Like, I laughed. I was like, oh, 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 wait, I minute. Mean, you mean? No, 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 no. And so it goes back and forth. And
1: you're just like, this is not a human
2: resources problem. Not for me because another thing that was happening was I had there, there was weirdness between me and them anyway because this is post Kanye thing, right? Just post me and Kanye. Well for
1: those who don't know what that is, uh, you got into an argument with Kanye, right? Because over him saying slavery was a slavery choice. Slavery was a choice.
2: Yeah. So me and like me and Kanye go back and forth and then my profile is is uh, is is bigger. I'd already met Bill at this point. I'd already met like Kimmel and the other people that I will be working with at this point. And so I'd already informed them that like I wasn't re-signing my contract. And The reality of it was like they were, Harvey was trying to, he was, uh, and I thought about it, I thought about staying. I thought about maybe still staying there and doing the show with them. I remember the breaking point, not the breaking point, was the thing that let me know that it wasn't going to be in the cards is um, Harvey was, we we went to Warner Brothers, we went to Fox, we went to a couple different places. He was trying to get a a spinoff television show on me. And one day he talked to me, he was like, yo, would you consider doing a show in Dulons? And, and Doolin's, and I was like, Doolin's is a soul food restaurant in Los Angeles. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, we could set the show there. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to do a show you know, in, in Doolin's on Crenshaw. Shout out to Doolin's on Crenshaw, amazing food. A
1: soul, no, but a soul food restaurant, you didn't want to do caricatures? Or like, you didn't want it to
2: be? They had a uh, show in there, and it was called South of Wilshire, and it was about all the celebrities that go to the hood. And it's like, the show was like, whatever, I didn't have any problem with that. But I, I didn't want to be that. I no longer wanted to be a part of that ecosystem because it was limiting and it was always going to be about one thing. Okay? It was always going to be about one thing. So I'm like, nah, I wouldn't do it. And I, like, I remember telling them, like in a meeting, I was like, because another what's thing... What's
1: the one thing? That I'm the black guy? Like, I'm, I'm the black dude. That's all it was going to be?
2: Well, number one, I, I, number one I, had no problem, I had no problem doing that because I started to realize that that was needed. Like, there was a thing at TMZ where there was a poll on the site and actually went on the site and it was like whether or not black people should be called African-Americans or niggas. It was like a poll that was run on the site because Suge Knight said it. So because Suge Knight said I'm more comfortable being called uh, a nigger, they decided to ask that question to everyone. <laughs> I remember I wasn't in the office, and uh, I've told this story before, and a big-time black celebrity hits me up, somebody I'd never met, and goes, yo, what are you doing if something like that could still happen? Like, he's like, I watch you on there. I love you on there. I think you represent on there really well. But do you see how messed up this is? Um, And so I knew that that was going to be my deal there for the rest of the time. But it was also something that you had to do. You had to course correct there culturally because the cultural IQ there is lower in terms of your culture than you would think that it would be. So you, you had to course correct there. And on a lot of things, by the way. Cause you know the the, the guy you know he's, the guy's older, so you, the, the culture's changing all well, the time.
1: Well, and it's not just that the guy's older; it's the whole the, the whole transactional nature of how it is they pioneered to change some of journalism is truly dirty. Like there is some truly dirty stuff. I don't know what you have remorse for there, because you gotta you gotta hustle and you gotta get you know you gotta get in where you can get in. But uh, I'm you know I'm. Don't need to tell you that TMZ does dirty stuff, and I don't know whether you have any remorse being affiliated with the brand.
2: No, I don't think I have any remorse. I think, well, this is what I this is what I have. It's, I'll tell you like this. So I don't think I have remorse, and the reason why is this. So after all of this stuff happens, it plays itself out on page six. So I end up being on the other on the other, on the other side of it. Like me and Mike go through our thing and, because I only really had three weeks left of work there anyway, I was like, oh, okay, cool, no problem. This is a big deal. I'm not coming on there and saying I'm sorry to anyone.
1: I don't think this is bad for business here. Like This is, in, this is not a bad way to go out. I, <laughs> yeah. As somebody who's spent months trying to figure out a way, an exit right. ramp on a job, I can tell you that that's not a bad place to get out where you, your future is secure and you yeah. can just go out on some sort of principle.
2: Right, so I'm, not, I'm like, nah, it's cool, it's, it's whatever. But what happened was my coworkers threw me a going-away party because I never stepped foot back in the office after that day. My co-workers threw the going away party. When my co-workers threw the going away party after that, like the party was that Saturday. This had been two weeks since everything had happened, right? Like the party was that Saturday. The page six called me on Monday. So was like, hey, we're going to run this story. So apparently them getting together and doing that, it pissed somebody off. And so that Monday it came. And I think... Being on the other side of a headline where things were misconstrued, purposely, blown out of proportion, and all of that, it made me feel like fate, I believe in God, but fate, God, the universe, had to have me on the other side of that headline. I had to know what that felt like before I could actually leave there. Because you do that to people. TMZ does that to people. Because we had done that to people. And there were a lot of people there, I have way more relationships from having worked there because there were way more people who knew that they could trust me to represent their side of an issue or knew that they could trust me to make sure a story didn't even get to the website than there were people who could ever say that I burned them, you know what I mean? Because um, I actually never burned anyone. Like, um, but the reality is I was there and I was complicit and I was a part of it for those whole nine years. So the reality, is, so the, the thing is when I was leaving all the stress that I had, all the sleepless nights that I had. Oh, wow. It just dissolved. Did it dissolve? It didn't dissolve. It, the, the sleepless nights and the stress that I had over that, over that, uh, over that story, I deserved it. It, was, it, it. it was part of the filtering out process and part of the moving on process. And the
1: acknowledgement the acknowledgement that, oh, I did this to people, this is how it feels uh this is how this feels to have it done to you, therefore this represents closure I, uh, closure I can leave now because i've been I've been doing this to others but it wasn't
2: even acknowledgement it was just like all right it's, it's happened to you now you see what you, what it is that you don't really want to be a part of, and that's not to dis that look to me, I think the real thing about it is i, I don't want to I don't want to moralize with them because I think that they're serving, um, I think that they're serving, they're serving an audience who desperately loves what it is they do. And they're also playing into something very specific amongst people that want to believe that people who are, who've attained a certain degree of celebrity have to be weird. Like if you're somewhere and you're watching a reality show, if you're somewhere and you're, and you look at people that are living a lifestyle that maybe you would want to live or a lifestyle that you didn't want to go out and t- you want to believe that those people are weird, are inherently kooky, are inherently off their, off kilter and off their rocker because there's like a bloodlust for celebrity dysfunction. And everybody else would dance around it and they got right to it. Everybody else would be like, hey, this is a lot. And they were like, no, 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 no. This is what you want. See what you think about these people? You're right. It's not that they're talented, it's that they're corrupt and weird and off kilter and all of this, and we'll show it to you. And people like to see that, so TMZ serves them. So I'm not sure if TMZ is a problem in and of itself, or if there was a celebrity culture problem that really was, in a way, examined by them. Now, as far as the journalistic stuff, I mean, they just he doesn't give a fuck. He'll pay for your video. He'll pay for your story. He'll do all of that stuff. But there are things that they won't do. There what,
1: there, what was happening with the sleeplessness? Forgive me. I don't mean to interrupt you. But when you say that you were dealing with this, the moral conundrum was the sleeplessness? Well, there was a moral. So there was
2: a. So there were two things that 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 led to me having weird feelings, and everybody knew this. Number one. Being the only black voice in a room where you're continuously pushed to be the black voice in a room is soul destroying. Like blackness is a gift. It's our experience and our culture is a gift. It's something to be proud to be a part of. It's not something that you should access with a shield and with a defense. And that's why sometimes the, the PTSD that you get from being in a situation where you feel marginalized or not included or whatever, it, it, that's why we're quick to, to trigger sometimes. We're like That's why we're hypersensitive sometimes because we have this beautiful thing and we're trying to defend it to people who obviously don't think it's so beautiful. So, you know, one time uh, there was a situation where Whitney Houston uh, Whitney, Whitney Houston passed and they were describing her funeral and it was like, um, it, it's called a homegoing and it's where people, it's traditionally more Expressive and all of that stuff like that. I'm like, it's not fucking National Geographic. What the fuck? You act like you just landed on another planet. It's a, it's a, it's a because she's going home to be with Jesus. It's not this big of a deal. It's not something that denotes an encyclopedic, encyclopedic uh, explanation to America. It's like a, like it feels, it, it feels, it feels weird. It's off. And to be honest with you, you don't do that with your culture. You don't get on there and explain. The ins and outs of your culture and your cultural customs and traditions, because you have them, to America for mass consumption, because it's not that it's even it's not that big of a deal. Whitney Houston passed away; her her family laid her home. That's it. Like, like you make it seem like people about to be rolling in the in the, in the aisles and fainting and doing backflips, and I know that's com- particularly how things are portrayed. Well, I want to go to a black church because it's so much more fun, but that shit is annoying, and being annoyed every single day, and and <laughs> I mean, Killer Mike, if you ever get Killer Mike on the show, if you've ever had-
1: I've been wanting to have him on for a long time.
2: Ever get Killer Mike on the show, ask Killer Mike how many times I, I, I call Killer Mike and I'm like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And Mike would be one of the people that would say, yo, you need to stay there. Like, he would, he would be like, you need to stay there. He does
1: a good job of navigating, navigating some complicated labyrinths here.
2: Depending on your viewpoint of things, Mike is a, a Mike, is, Mike is Mike Mike. You know what I mean? Me and Mike don't agree on everything, but I know he really means what the fuck he says. And I, and even in the times we don't agree, I know that like he means best for his community. He's a he's a leader there. So, um, but yeah, I would call him up because he's wise, and I'd be like, "Yo, I can't I can't do this." He's like, "Nah, you need you need to stay there." And everybody would say that. Charlemagne would be like, "I remember one time." Over the, over the Marion Barry situation, I was super mad that Marion Barry died. And it was like, okay, so Marion Barry passes away. It's crack mayor, Mary Marion Barry passes away. Well, you know, that's the way they do it. Marion Barry had an issue in D.C. Everybody knows about it. But before that, do you know who Marion Barry was? Do you know what Marion Barry was in civil rights? Do you know what Marion Barry means to Washington, D.C.? Do you, do you want to have that? As a pioneer and and leader. As as a pioneer and leader, yeah. And typically sometimes as black men, and I don't want to get into anybody else who passed away, but typically as black men, um, black people, that's a sensational thing. I'm not acting like Marion Barry, that people don't know that that happened. That was a huge big pop culture moment. But if you are a uh, if you want to talk about Marion Barry in the barbershop, and they wouldn't do this in DC, they love the man. If you want to talk about Mary and Barry in a barbershop as the guy who was on crack, that's one thing. But if you're putting this out for everyone, I feel like you owe it to people to contextualize his life if he's dead. So I was getting ready. I'm like, yo, I, I don't know if I can do this. And I called Charlemagne. I'm on the phone with Charlemagne. Charlemagne was like, man, you can't, you can't quit your job because of Mary Barry, You just can't quit your job. He's like, he, he's like, you're right where you're supposed to be. And to their credit, They cleared it out on TMZ Live, and me and the organization were able to go back and forth about the way I feel like they covered that story. So I started to feel that it it wasn't until Kanye that I felt like I was actually growing. I wasn't growing. I was stuck in a spin cycle of cultural damage control.
1: Thank you for being on with us, sir. It was good meeting you, good spending the time with you.
2: No problem, man, I appreciate you.
0: Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.